Hello, Internet. We are live. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 50 of the Stanford MLC Seminar Series. Uh, I'm Karan, and as always, we have with us Dan. Um, say hi, hey. Dan. Hey, Piero. You might want to say hi, Piero, because we also have a podcast now. And... All right. Okay. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Uh, we have Matei and our guest Hi. today, Deepak Narayanan, who Matei will be introducing. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to, uh, you know, uh, I guess, pat ourselves on the back for 50 episodes and also uh, 7K subs uh, on YouTube, which we just crossed. So um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we have a podcast now, thanks to Dan. So that's uh, going to be up on Spotify and Google and Apple, wherever podcasts are found, basically. So uh, go check that out. Um, it has all the uh, older recordings, and I believe we'll upload every Monday and Friday. Uh, yep. An old, mm -hmm. old one on Monday and a new one on Friday. Yep. Um, awesome. So um, I'll just throw over to Matei to introduce Deepak, um, and let's get started. All right. Yeah, I'm super excited to introduce uh, Deepak Narayanan here. He's actually one of my first PhD students. Uh, he graduated last year, and now He's a senior research uh, at Microsoft Research, and um, he's uh, going to talk about uh, a bunch of work, including some work that actually um, got the best uh, student paper award at uh, supercomputing last year. Take it away, Deepak. Cool, yeah, awesome. Uh, it's good to be back at uh, Stanford. Uh, yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about work that I primarily did actually at Stanford. Um, but this is joint work with many awesome collaborators at Stanford, including my advisor, Matei, uh, Microsoft Research, as well as NVIDIA. Uh, so deep neural networks have helped generate state-of-the-art results across a broad range of applications, uh, such as machine translations, speech-to-text game playing, um, and even newer classes of applications like drug discovery. However, training and inference of modern models is extremely computationally expensive. Uh, this is a graph borrowed from the recent GPT-3 paper uh, that shows the number of computer operations needed to train various natural language processing models. The largest GPT-3 model requires about eight petaflop per second years uh, of computation, which is, uh, which is really large. And so as Moore's law slows down, a wide variety of parallel hardware, such as GPUs, TPUs, multi-core CPUs, and other domain-specific accelerators have been introduced to meet this massive need. Uh, each of these hardware architectures have different programming models uh, and show heterogeneous performance behavior on the wide plethora of deep learning models commonly deployed today. Indeed, this heterogeneity is bound to only increase in the coming years. This heterogeneity also complicates traditional deep learning workflows. Typically, expensive heterogeneous accelerators are part of a shared resource pool. Schedulers then grant resources to different users. Given dedicated resources, users can then use a runtime or framework such as PyTorch or TensorFlow uh, in order to execute their training or inference task. For modern models, computations are iterative, long-running, and extremely compute-intensive. The goal of most users in this exercise is to train and deploy their models with as high performance as possible, leveraging the awesome potential of modern hardware. However, in practice, users are often forced to make a number of key decisions that critically impact performance. 
For example, it's not always clear how users should pick resource types for their jobs. Should they use a V100 or an A100 GPU? A sensible policy could be to just use the fastest GPU type available, but this could lead to unintended consequences, such as jobs being stuck in queues, waiting for resources all the time. Users do not need to think about this question when using homogeneous devices. And then given resources, users need to decide how best to train their model or perform inference. This process, especially training, can take days to weeks, meaning users might want to parallelize their computations to get results back in more reasonable timeframes. Should the user use the same one-size-fits-all parallelization strategy for all models and resource configurations? In practice, this is extremely complicated for users, can lead to suboptimal decisions, extremely expensive from a time and cost perspective. In this, make the case for how intelligently reasoning about heterogeneity in terms of models, hardware, and even objectives is essential in achieving good performance for machine learning training. This can help us obtain throughputs of up to 502 petaflops per second when training a model on thousands of GPUs, or improve average job completion time for a collection of jobs by 3.5x using the same set of resources. Consequently, users are able to use their resources much more efficiently. I'll discuss how this principle applies in two contexts. First, I will discuss distributed training, where we are given a fixed budget of resources and we want to train a model as fast as possible using these resources. Training a deep neural network model at a high level involves finding some weight parameters W that fit a training data set, consisting of inputs and often associated labels. A forward pass through the model generates intermediate activations as well as some prediction. This prediction could possibly be incorrect and errors between the prediction and the true labels are backpropagated through the model in a backward pass, generating weight gradients that can then be used to update the model's parameters. The backward pass uses both the weight parameters and intermediate activations as input in order to compute the weight gradients. Optimization is typically performed in iterations and each iteration can be parallelized within an accelerator such as the GPU and also across accelerators. Since model training is so computationally expensive, it is often necessary to distribute training over multiple devices. In this talk, I will use device and GPU interchangeably. The most common method of distributed model training is data parallelism, where every device has a copy of the model. The input dataset is sharded and weight updates are exchanged periodically. Another method of model, parallel model training is model parallelism, where a single copy of the model parameters are split over multiple devices. This can be performed in a couple of different ways. For example, each layer or operator in the model can be partitioned over multiple devices. This is typically called tensor model parallelism. Alternatively, layers can be striped across multiple devices a single batch of samples can be split into smaller micro batches, and then execution can be pipelined across these micro batches. Each of these approaches has trade-offs along a number of different axes, such as the total amount of communication required. For example, with data parallelism, we need to perform periodic all reductions of weight gradients after every iteration. This can be expensive for models with a large number of parameters. 
there are a couple of different flavors of model parallelism. So with tensor model parallelism, layers or operators in the model are split over multiple accelerators. Depending on the semantics of the operators that are split, different communication patterns are needed. For example, Megatron proposes a particular splitting strategy for transformer models. Transformer blocks consist of a couple of different matrix multiplications. And when we use tensor parallelism, these matrix multiplications need to be distributed over multiple GPUs. This can be communication intensive when performed across multi-GPU servers. With pipeline parallelism, layers in a model are sharded over devices. In other words, each device is responsible for a subset of the layers in the model. A batch is split into smaller micro batches and then execution is pipeline across these micro batches. Visually, this is what this procedure looks like. So in this particular example, the model is split over four devices and a single input needs to first pass through the four devices in the forward direction, followed by the backward direction. We show forward passes in blue and backward passes in green. Naive interlayer model parallelism only uses one device at a time and thus suffers from poor utilization and low throughput. In order to improve utilization, we can split this input batch A into four smaller micro batches, A1, A2, A3, and A4, and then pipeline execution across these four micro batches. The optimizer is then step and weight parameters updated when all micro batches in the batch are completed. We can see in this simple timeline diagram that execution completes uh, with pipelining much faster than it does without pipelining. Note that in this scheme, every device is idle for a couple of time units at the start of a batch as well as at the end of a batch. We can exactly quantify the size of this pipeline bubble as well. It's just equal to P minus one forward. In this particular example, P is equal to four. It turns out that there are other ways to lay out and schedule competition among the available devices when using pipeline parallelism. And these other choices lead to a different set of trade-offs. It turns out that given the trade-offs of these various parallelization strategies, composing them is often necessary in order to achieve high performance. This, however, is not easy to do in practice. Let us consider a simplified setting where we just use tensor and pipeline model parallelism. Assume that the total number of GPUs available is N, the number of GPUs used for tensor model parallelism is T, and the number of GPUs used for pipeline model parallelism is P. Since we are only using tensor and pipeline model parallelism, T times P is equal to N. We can now compute the fraction of ideal time spent in a pipeline bubble, which is just the ratio of the time spent in the pipeline bubble divided by the ideal time needed to process some M micro batches, where M is the number of micro batches in a batch. We quickly see that this ratio simplifies to P minus one divided by M. And if we substitute P equal to N divided by T, we see a relationship between the tensor model parallel size 
and the pipeline and the fraction of time spent in a pipeline bubble. Simply put, as T increases, the pipeline bubble decreases. However, we also observe that as T increases on the number of G server, all reduced communication needed for tensor model parallelism now needs to be performed cross server and becomes more expensive. Thus, we see that increasing the tensor model parallel size leads to two effects that counteract each other. The pipeline bubble size decreases, increasing performance, but the cost of communication also increases, which decreases performance. And so it's not immediately clear how these two factors uh, should, uh, should be balanced. We can see this effect in practice um, with some empirical results. So here I'm going to show results for a 162 billion parameter GPT model. Uh, training here is performed on 64 A100 GPUs. On the x-axis, I show various uh, combinations of tensor and pipeline model parallelism that use these 64 GPUs. And on the y-axis, I show performance per GPU. Uh, yeah, so throughput per GPU. We see that for both large tensor parallel sizes and large pipeline parallel sizes, throughput is low, but for slightly different reasons. When the tensor parallel size is large, all reductions for tensor model parallelism need to be performed across servers, increasing the overhead of communication. When the pipeline parallel size is large, the pipeline bubble is large as well, as predicted by our analytical model, consequently reducing performance. Consequently, we see that P equal to T equal to eight is a happy middle ground with highest throughput for both shown batch sizes. I wanna note here that the experiments were run on eight GPU servers. And so if you use 16 GPU servers, the, the optimal throughput might be for a different combination of tensor and pipeline model parallelism. And the set of trade-offs actually becomes even more complicated when we also want to consider data parallelism. Thus, in order to achieve high performance in a variety of different settings, we need to provide heterogeneity-aware distributed training. Heterogeneity here arises from both the model and the hardware deployment. For example, we might want to train a model with either a large number of weight parameters or a small number of weight parameters. Similarly, we might want to train models in a hardware deployment where we have really fast interconnects between GPUs or interconnects between GPUs. And so it immediately becomes clear that a single parallelization strategy cannot possibly rule all possible um, deployment situations. Consequently, we observe that many different factors can affect the performance of distributed training at scale, including the degrees of pipeline, tensor, and data parallelism. It turns out that a number of other factors also influence the amount of communication, the size of the pipeline bubble, as well as uh, the memory footprint of training. And our paper, which appeared at Supercomputing, has more details on how to navigate the various trade-offs. However, once we carefully navigate these various performance interactions, we're able to achieve quite strong scaling performance. Here, I'm showing a weak scaling setup where we increase the model size as we increase the number of GPUs. 
observed that at really large scales, we were able to efficiently run training iterations for GPT models with up to a trillion parameters using 3000 plus GPUs with pretty graceful scaling. So broad takeaways here were that one parallelization strategy cannot possibly fit all models and all hardware deployments. Existing parallelization strategies have different trade-offs and these need to be considered carefully in order to obtain good performance. But if we do consider each of these different factors, we, the end result is much more cost-effective distributed training. So now I'm gonna switch tracks a bit and discuss how similar ideas also apply to scheduling, where we want to assign resources from a central pool to jobs submitted by various users. A scheduler typically accepts training jobs uh, from many different users that can be implemented in various existing frameworks like PyTorch and TensorFlow and assigns resources in a shared cluster to each of these jobs. Typically, um, this assignment process is done while trying to optimize a objective um, uh, specified by a cluster operator. This objective could be something like fairness, cost, or make span. Scheduling is an extremely well-studied problem in computer systems in other contexts as well. For example, um, in big data clusters where we use Spark. However, we observed that for machine learning, um, heterogeneity is becoming extremely common. Uh, this is true of deployments in the public cloud, like on Microsoft Azure, um, Amazon AWS and Google Cloud, but it's also true of uh, private cluster deployments. Uh, anecdotally, our uh, group at Stanford uh, use GPUs of a couple of different types. Um, so these could be uh, GPUs like the A100, the V100, the P100, um, but public clouds also have other types of accelerators like the, like the TPU. Now this complicates um, the resource allocation problem uh, because models and operators perform quite differently across these different hardware architectures. So this is a graph which shows the relative speed up when moving from an older K80 GPU uh, to a newer uh, V100 GPU for a variety of different model architectures. Um, we see that uh, a transformer model, for example, experiences a 3.3x speed up when moving from the V100 from the K80 to the V100 GPU. However, a ResNet 50 model that is typically used for image tasks um, sees a much larger speed up of 9.6x from the K80 to the V100 GPU. Now, giving each of these jobs equal times on the V100 and K80 GPUs through a simple round robin schedule leads to a much worse outcome for the ResNet 50 job. Uh, since it experiences uh, a much lower throughput on the, the K80 GPU compared to the V100 GPU. Disregarding heterogeneity can thus lead to quite suboptimal allocations. Um, uh, and in this work, we tried to do better. The other complication here is that different deployments might want to optimize different objectives. Uh, and performance heterogeneity needs to be accounted for in different ways based on the end objective to be optimized. End objectives can be specified over single jobs. For example, we might want to just maximize the throughput or minimize the cost of a given job. Um, but 
they can also be specified over many um, and, and such decisions usually uh, uh, yeah so and 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 the 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 process of allocating resources to various jobs is much more complicated when we have multi-job objectives like fairness or even hierarchical policies. So there have been quite a few schedulers that have been proposed in recent years, uh, specifically designed for deep learning, uh, but many of these uh, existing cluster schedulers do not consider uh, performance heterogeneity at all and are explicitly designed for homogeneous clusters. Uh, newer schedulers like Allox and Gandiva Fair do consider performance heterogeneity, uh, but do not support all of the objectives that one can possibly specify over um, multiple jobs. So in order to address these concerns, uh, we designed Gavel, which is a new heterogeneity-aware preemption-based scheduler um, that addresses these issues in a two-step process. Uh, Gavel's main insight is that it can express policies as optimization problems over the allocation. Um, and Gavel uses an abstraction that we call effective throughput in order to allow these optimization problems to incorporate both accelerator and workload heterogeneity. Uh, once we run um, these optimization problems, we then use a policy agnostic ground-based scheduling mechanism to ensure that jobs actually receive the optimal allocation that was returned by these policies. Um, and, and the net effect of, of all of this is that we can improve objectives such as average job completion time by as much as 3.5x using the same set of resources. Gavel has a number of, of different components, but for the purposes of time, I'm just gonna uh, focus on how we can specify um, existing policies um, as optimization problems in this, in this talk. So to reiterate, we want to make a wide variety of scheduling policies heterogeneity aware. Uh, these include simpler ones like FIFO and shortage job first. Uh, more complex fairness policies, such as those proposed in recent work, um, and even hierarchical policies um, uh, that have multiple levels. So one of our main insights in Gavel is that objectives in common policies, um, such as those shown in the previous slide, uh, can be easily expressed as a function of each job's observed throughput. For example, in a shortage job first policy, uh, the duration of a job is just the ratio of the number of training iterations that need to be performed divided by the job's throughput. Um, the cost of a job is just going to be due the duration, which we already established can be easily expressed as a function of throughput uh, times the per unit uh, cost of resources. And the speed up of a job is just the throughput divided by some uh, reference throughput. Always the, the hard question here is, how should we actually think about throughput in a heterogeneous setting where jobs can potentially be moved between resources of different types. Um, and so in, in Gavel, we express allocations um, as uh, matrices that specify the fraction of time a job can spend on each accelerator type. So for example, an allocation could specify that job zero should spend 60% of its time on a V100 GPU, and 40% of its time on a P100 GPU, while job one should spend 20% of its time on a V100 GPU and 60% of its time on a P100 GPU. Um, when the allocation is recomputed, these fractions might change, um, and allocations are typically recomputed at either periodic intervals of time 
or when something we call a, a, a reset event happens. Uh, so this could include a new job arriving at the cluster or an existing job completing. The optimal allocation is extremely uh, dependent on the actual um, objective that we are trying to optimize for. So the natural question now to ask is given an allocation as specified in the previous slide, um, how is the throughput of this job actually affected? So let's consider the same allocation as before. Uh, so this is just a visual representation of that same allocation from the previous slide. Um, and let's assume that job zero observes a throughput of 100 iterations per second on the V100 GPU um, and 40 iterations per second on the P100 GPU. So now if job zero spends 60% of its time on the V100 and 40% of its time on the P100, um, it's throughput in net, um, if this allocation is realized ideally, it's just going to be 60% times 100 plus 40% times 40, which will 76 iterations per second. Just see that by time averaging the individual throughputs that jobs observe on these different resource types, um, we can get the effective throughput of running jobs on the resource mix according to the specified allocation. And now if we, by chance, were able to increase job zero's uh, V100 allocation, its effective throughput would increase. Um, mathematically, it's extremely simple to compute the effective throughput. It's just going to be the dot product between um, the, the raw throughputs that a job receives and its corresponding allocation. We can now take this idea of an allocation and effective throughput and use it to make existing policies heterogeneity aware. So let's consider a least attained service policy that tries to equalize the total time or the total commute, compute time that each job receives. Uh, so if we were to run this on a homogeneous cluster, um, this policy would look like a standard maximum um, uh, uh, optimization objective. Um, the, the same policy can now be made heterogeneity aware uh, by instead computing maximum fairness over normalized effective throughputs. Note that we have this normalizing factor in the denominator of the objective in order to ensure that we can actually compare throughputs across different jobs. Uh, for example, a ResNet 50 job could train on the order of 100, hundreds of samples per second, while a more computationally intensive uh, language model might only be able to run on the order of a couple of uh, tens of samples per second. And so this normalization factor uh, makes it possible to compare the effective throughputs across these different jobs. And we can use a similar process um, for other objectives as well um, in order to make them heterogeneity aware. So we ran multiple experiments in simulation on a cluster with 108 GPUs of, of three different types. Um, we evaluated each policy on multiple traces. Um, each trace corresponds to a different Poisson arrival rate. Um, and we ran this for a maximum fairness policy. So, so here we're showing uh, uh, three lines. Um, the first is the, the blue line, um, which is the, the, the vanilla least attained service policy that is heterogeneity agnostic. Um, and then we show two variants of, of, of the gavel policy, which makes these policies heterogeneity aware. There are a couple of interesting um, results to note here. Uh, the first is that uh, our heterogeneity aware policies allow uh, the same cluster uh, with the same set of resources to sustain a higher input uh, job rate. 
We also see that for a given input job rate, uh, Giavel's heterogeneity aware policies um, uh, support, uh, improve the average job completion time by as much as 3.5x uh, by making sure that uh, jobs are given uh, different types of resources in a heterogeneity aware way. So for example, uh, jobs that uh, uh, see a large slowdown on a particular type of resource are never given time on that particular resource. We also see that um, if we look at the full CDF of job completion times, uh, Gavel's heterogeneity aware policies lead to much shorter um, tails in the in the job completion time uh, distribution. So broad takeaways here was that uh, performance heterogeneity can make uh, resource allocation much harder um, and deferring choice to users can lead to bad outcomes. Uh, for example, all users just choosing the fastest resource type, um, increasing uh, demand for those resources and consequently queuing delay. Um, and so instead we can formulate existing policies as optimization problems using this concept of effective throughput uh, to incorporate performance heterogeneity. Um, and this can help us improve objectives such as average job completion time by as much as 3.5x. While all of this sounds really promising, uh, I believe we're only really at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to uh, system support for machine learning, training, and inference. Uh, and there are lots of really exciting directions for future exploration. So a lot of this talk um, concentrated on, on improving the performance for machine learning training, uh, but you might ask what is the story like for, for, for inference? Um, and also I kind of talked about scheduling and parallelization um, in completely independent context, uh, but can, can you think about them in, in a more unified framework and what are the, the, the kind of performance implications of, of, of doing this? And, and I think that there are other uh, directions for future work in this area as well. Uh, so a bit of a shameless plug, I am looking for interns for summer 22, uh, 2022. So if you are, uh, if you find any of this interesting, I would love to uh, chat. Um, and so with that, I'm happy to take questions. Awesome. Um, thanks so much, Deepak. I think. We are, oh, we're back, awesome. Um, yeah, thanks so much for the great talk. I wanna remind everybody in the YouTube audience that you can uh, send in your questions and we'll keep track of them um, and uh, get those across to Deepak uh, in this podcast. So um, yeah, I guess to kick things off, um, one thing I was curious about was in uh, you know second part of your talk, mm -hmm. um, when you talk about heterogeneous resources, I guess, um, have you thought about um, things like preemption and um, you know, these standard things where on cloud, cloud services, you can often um, cheap out by just uh, uh, grabbing preemptible instances and that can really drive down costs. So I, if I remember correctly, like A100, like AGPU A100 uh, machine is like 50 plus dollars on G Cloud and then it's $17 if you do preemption. So you can really save three to four X uh, on that. But it seems like um, in your setting, maybe, uh, you assume that like the 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 compute is fixed in the sense that it it doesn't leave or or come. Um, so I'm just curious if uh, if you have thoughts on on these types of settings and uh, particularly for like uh, you know users that might be interested in optimizing cloud um, resource usage. Yeah, no, that that's a great question, and I think a lot of the ideas we talked about are actually applicable in those preemptible cloud instance settings as well. 
um, you might think of uh, trying to determine if you should use um, an A100 or a P100 preemptible instance, right? Um, and, and, and this general way of, of thinking through um, uh, effective throughput can, can help you in, in that particular situation as, as well. Um, or maybe uh, 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 the, the prices of these preemptible instances often change with time, um, especially on cloud providers like Amazon. Um, and so you might want to change the decision you make based on um, how these prices move. Um, and we actually have, a, we had a workshop paper at FieldDB Dispa a couple of years ago where we actually do consider this question of how do you um, pick the right preemptible um, instance uh, uh, in, in, in a public cloud. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah, definitely preemptible instances are, are super, are much cheaper than dedicated instances. And so if you can afford to get your job preempted, definitely um, go for preemptible versus on-demand. Deepak, I think, you know, thank you very much for the presentation. It was amazing and super useful. And it's great to see like this uh, scalability um, in, in, in really real world scenarios to be that efficient. That's really amazing. Uh, one question that I have is um, in the second part of the talk, um, one of the um, um, dimensions that were one of the variables actually that were involved in the computation of the uh, uh, metrics for the policies was the number of iterations um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering, uh, in, in many cases, um, um, when you train deep learning models, in particular, not on those extremely large data sets that make it so that you're most likely underfitting uh, constraint, but in other cases where you are more, more prone to overfitting where that is a little bit smaller, uh, mm -hmm. there are many techniques that impact the number of iterations that it's not fixed anymore. So for instance, yeah. early stopping yeah. or some other, any, any criteria that could make it for like a smaller uh, training time that oh, smaller number of iterations than you were expecting to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, how would that affect your um, um, you know, assessment of the, uh, of the policies? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, yeah. So that again, great question. Um, so the fairness policy that I talked about uh, was is actually um, trying to give users instantaneous fairness. Um, so it's actually uh, only looking at uh, a job's throughput and is agnostic to how many um, iterations the job is going to run or how long the job is going to run for. Um, and so, um, for example. Um, maybe you figure out um, after you've run 10,000 iterations that you don't need to um, run the job further, but you actually configured the job to run for, I don't know, 100,000 iterations or something. Um, you can uh, essentially kill the job. Um, and our system compute um, allocations um, uh, with the new assumption that the job that you just killed is not part of the active set of jobs. So you'd recompute the allocation without that job that you just killed. Um, so, so, so yeah, that's an example of a policy where you don't need um, the uh, number of iterations of the job actually plugged into the policy. Um, and so you're actually in, in pretty good shape if people make dynamic decisions on the fly um, uh, based on what the convergence trajectory of the model looks like or, or, or so forth. Um, there are other policies. For example, I talked about shortest job first. Um, that's an example of a policy where um, you need, the, 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 the policy needs to have some estimate of how long um, the job is going to take. And so one of the inputs to the policy is going to be the number of training iterations. 
Um, I think there, uh, there you can, if a user figures out that they don't want to run something for um, 100,000 iterations, maybe they just want to run the job for 30,000 iterations. Um, that's something that they can provide as an input to the scheduler and the scheduler can recompute its allocation um, with this new estimate in mind. Um, and that would work out okay. Um, but but yeah, like like the, the system is not really designed to be able to tell when when people make some of those uh, dynamic decisions on the fly. It, it, for 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 those policies that need some duration estimate, uh, you uh, yeah, the, the policy can't really do anything if that initial estimate is is quite quite off. Got um, it. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. And again, if you know that things are gonna um, likely stop early, probably you want to use just a different policy to begin with, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. And you can always update things once you know you can update things, and the policy can be recomputed, and and you have like a better state of the world now. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much for the answer. Deepak, there's a there's quite a few questions in the audience, so I uh, figured we we may as well start looking at some of those. Um, one of the ones that I saw, uh, actually Beatty asked this, and I think one of the students in our class also asked, um, is, uh, could you talk a little bit more about inference, uh, kind of the inference side of sure. things are the challenges sure. different from those in training? Um, uh, if you could just talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, so yeah, great question. Um, I think, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot, there are a lot of similarities between training and inference. I mean, at the end of the day, um, uh, it's the same uh, computation pattern often. Um, you're just running the forward pass of the model instead of running the forward and the backward pass. Um, but I think the requirements of downstream applications are um, different enough that uh, the, the solution space that you want to consider is quite different. Um, so I think one um, big difference between training and inference is that training typically runs for hours to days to weeks, um, while inference runs on much finer uh, time granularities. Right? Um, so, so inference is typically an online workload. Um, uh, you don't really know when, when users' requests are going to come in, uh, but you need to be able to react to those um, requests um, in, in, with, with very low latency. Um, I think the other big difference with, with inference is that it's, uh, it's, an, it's a latency-focused workload um, as opposed to a throughput-focused workload. Um, and so, uh, uh, when you're thinking about doing things like like parallelization, um, you need to uh, uh, optimize for metrics like latency as opposed to time to accuracy or or just um, uh, throughput. I mean, I think even if you're thinking about inference from the context of of, of scheduling, uh, uh, you you want to make sure that you give these inference tasks uh, time on the on the GPUs in, incredibly quickly, right? Whereas um, with, with training jobs, because they run for, for, for days to weeks, it's okay if you kind of put those jobs on a queue for 30 minutes to an hour to a couple of hours. Right? So um, I think there are lots of similarities between inference and, and training, but uh, I think that the, the downstream demands of inference create, um, uh, I, I think the solution space is going to be quite different. Yeah. Gotcha, yeah. That, the, the... The, the differences kind of in the requirements and the solutions there is, is really interesting. Um, I'm yeah. seeing another couple of questions in the chat about, do you know anything about uh, system heterogeneity and federated learning? Um, uh, it's okay if you, you uh, if 
if you don't, if it's not an area of expertise, but I thought it was interesting because we've had some talks in federated learning before. Um, and I think it's certainly something that, that people are curious about. Yeah. So yeah, I, I need an expert on, on, on federated learning, but I do think that, uh, uh, federated learning is, uh, interesting. Uh, well, it, it's an area that's seeing a lot of traction. Um, and I think it's like, like quite different from from the setting we talked about today, um, in in where um, you have a lot of these um, uh, data center GPUs um, that are available right now. I think one of the the core problems in federated learning is that um, you have a lot of these um, edge devices, um, and they might not all be connected to the internet um, at this current instant of time, right? Um, and and so um, you have this other problem of like figuring out when devices connect, what should they do, and 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 how do you kind of keep all of these devices in sync, given that they're all not connected at the same time. I think that's one big difference uh, from from the federated learning setting compared to what I uh, I talked about. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting problem. Um, Cool. Um, so just sourcing a couple more questions from the chat uh, about kind of choices when you do pipeline or, or model-based parallelism. So um, many asks, how did the assumptions of memory or cache architecture factor into the calculations of pipeline versus model-based parallelism? Um, uh, Matthias asked, how, do, how do you decide uh, like where to split the models and model parallelism? Um, what methods do you use to, to kind of decide where that, those splits should be? Yeah. So to yeah. So, so for the second question, um, it, it really depends on the the model architecture. Um, so um, a lot of um, work has been done on figuring out how to parallelize really large transformer models um, because that's all the rage these days. Um, but the 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 nice thing I guess about uh, these large transformer models is they're extremely repetitive. Um, you basically have um, these transformer blocks. Uh, of the same dimension repeated a bunch of times. And so um, uh, the models that these where the splits in the model actually um, quite strong. you want to make sure if you're doing pipeline um, or you Deepak, uh, I think we're I think we're having a few meeting. connection issues um so I think we missed the the last few sentences you were saying there uh I think uh, the last thing I remember hearing was starting from transformers are very similar or something like that yeah okay yeah so 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 transformer models basically uh uh, have uh, this very uh, this this repetitive structure. So they have um, the same block repeated a bunch of different times using the same dimensions. And what that means is that if you are trying to determine what the how to split that model uh, for pipeline model parallelism, that the simplest thing to do is just to give an equal number of layers to each of the different GPUs. Um, and so um, the the problem there is not terribly interesting because the computation is so. Um, regular and th this model has this this kind of nice structure. Um, for more complicated models like ResNet 50, where for example the number of input and output channels in your convolutional layers um, changes as you um, go deeper in the model, uh, you might have to use other techniques. So we explored um, 
using uh, like a dynamic programming um, a partitioning algorithm um, in, uh, uh, in, in our SOSP paper from 2019. Um, there have also been other pieces of work like FlexFlow, um, also from Stanford that have looked at this, at this partitioning problem. Um, and so the, the partitioning problem becomes more interesting when your model has less structure. Um, but for, I guess the, the primary deployment of these really large models today, um, that the partitioning problem is actually quite simple. Um, so that was the second question. Uh, I guess the, the first question was, what are the memory implications of, of, of splitting? Um, so yeah, so, 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 I, I guess that there are two regimes here. Um, you could use model parallelism uh, for models um, that are quite a bit larger than the memory capacity of a single GPU. Um, so for example, GPT-3, which has 175 billion parameters, um, the, the intermediate data that you need to keep in GPU memory um, is quite a bit larger than even 175 billion. Um, and then you basically use I don't know, FP16, you multiply that by two, that, that, that's quite large. The largest GPU that we have today. Um, so, so essentially um, in, in, in settings like that, you have to use model parallelism in order to even fit the, the model in, the, in, in GPU memory. So um, um, in, in contexts like that, uh, uh, trying to reason about the, the memory footprint of training is, is extremely important. Um, uh, yeah, um, but, but there's also this other setting where maybe you use model parallelism just for uh, performance improvements. Um, in, in, in cases like that, uh, the memory footprint uh, questions are, um, I guess people think about them less um, simply because the, the, the model is, is small and, and the, the footprint of that model fits comfortably in a single GPU. So if you split the model over more GPUs, the footprint is only going to decrease. And so you don't really uh, think too much about it. Yeah. Um, whether you actually try to reason about um, uh, memory hierarchy and, and things like that, um, that would be an interesting um, area of, of, of study. Um, the thing with these machine learning, with, with this workload is that, um, we often use uh, kernel libraries like QDNN um, that uh, already use things like blocking and so on uh, to optimally use um, the, the cache hierarchy within the GPU. Um, but yeah, it, I think it is an interesting question to like figure out, can you like map to the cache hierarchy of the GPU in more intelligent ways in order to improve performance? Gotcha. Um, let's see, I think uh, maybe Karan or Piero, you want to ask a question? Yeah, I have a quick, uh, I guess, maybe broader question about, um, I guess, this line of work. Um, and I, the thing I'm curious about is whether you've thought about um, uh, putting this together in sort of an accessible way uh, through either code or, you know, these schedulers that you talk through so that people can um, kind of run them in uh, I guess, small organization or, or sort of individual settings, because I think like, um, I guess it seems like a lot of the experiments often um, are, are in the regime where you have extremely large models with um, um, the kind of compute clusters that you would need to train, say, like a GPT-3 model and stuff like that. But a lot of the, I think, techniques seem like they're really good for people who are trying to optimize their, uh, you know, compute 
uh, on a day-to-day -day kind of uh, basis. Like I try to do this in kind of hacky ways, but maybe this is a more systematic way to handle that. Um, so I'm wondering, like, is there is there something you've thought about there um, that you know might appeal to people who are not just maybe uh, you know cluster managers, but also uh, yeah. other other folks? Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing I forgot to mention um, is that uh, both of those pieces of work that I talked about are open source on GitHub. Um, so uh, uh, essentially, I, I can send you the links and maybe you can drop it into the um, app. Great, on, yeah. the, on, on YouTube, um, but, but and Gavel are um, open source and try to play with it um, on, on your smaller cluster. Um, I think there, there is still some work to be done um, in order to uh, fully democratize some of this optimization work. Um, uh, so, so for example, in Megatron, we don't really have, um, uh, we still haven't uh, written an optimizer that can take our the insights that we kind of manually collected um, and, and automate them. Um, I think that would be something that's useful for the community. Um, but yeah, like our our paper talks more about like what are the the right the right considerations or what are the things that people should be. Um, thinking about when they try to train a model that doesn't necessarily um, have a trillion parameters. You can kind of use some of this reasoning even for much smaller um, deployments. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I think it, it is important going forward for there to be better tooling so that people who are not necessarily domain experts in systems um, can still kind of make use of 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 of, of some of these some of these things in in, in some semi-optimal way. Yeah, that, that would be amazing because I would I think yeah. may, probably save a lot of uh, a lot of time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I guess just to sneak in a question from uh, Max in the audience, uh, yeah. who was wondering uh, if you could elaborate a little bit on the uh, you know the matrix that was kind of mapping device to job and how hard it is to reach. Um, a good matrix as as the number of kind of devices increases, yeah. job increase, jobs increase, you know. Um, can you talk a little bit through that? So I think, yeah, that basically there are two matrices there. Um, one is the matrices of, of, of the matrix of throughput. So essentially, you have a VR in your cluster. Um, that requires some small amount of ben benchmarking for every job on every resource site. Um, it's not significant. Maybe it's it's five minutes, which is small compared to the full duration of the of the job. Um, the second matrix is the allocation, right? Which is the optimal amount of time um, each job should spend on each resource type um, while trying to optimize this this downstream objective. Um, that is actually computed uh, by Gavel's policy framework. So we run um, off-the-shelf solver um, like in Groby or, or CVXPy um, to actually compute what those optimal fractions are. Um, and typically uh, for, it depends on, on, on the policy as well because that affects the, the complexity of the optimization problem that we need to solve. Um, but we can usually run optimization problems for uh, thousands of jobs um, and thousands of resources um, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, and we have some follow-up work in SOSP this past year. Uh, it's a system called POP where we try to reduce the 
the, the amount of time needed to compute some of these allocations when we use optimization problem formulations. Actually, I had a follow-up questions to the previous yeah. question that Karan was asking, but I mean, I think we are a little bit uh, going towards the end of, 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 of the time that we have allotted. So maybe I will um, ask you, the, um, uh, let's say, a more uh, open-ended question about uh, future directions. I'm really curious about yeah. what, what is next in, in the field for you, your research specifically, and for the field in general. What are the missing pieces to get to a point where uh, maybe as Karan was, was, was suggesting implicitly, we can get to a point where um, there could be like a piece of code that given your cluster and given your uh, uh, PyTorch model uh, suggests you what to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, great questions. Um, I think the N plus one project that I'm interested in right now is, is thinking about how to uh, distribute uh, inference computations um, while trying to take in the fact that these um, inference computations are online, they care about latency objectives and, and, and so on. And so that's something I'm actively thinking about and, and working on uh, today. Um, I think as a field, what, what do we kind of need? Um, a good way to write generic tools um, that can do some of this, a lot of this optimization uh, uh, for us automatically. Um, and I think um, a lot of that might be just um, uh, kind of trying to like build some of this support into a common, commonly used framework like PyTorch. Um, I think that the problem also is that uh, PyTorch today only natively supports, if I'm talking about distributed training, only natively supports data parallelism. Um, and there are lots of other libraries that to build in support for tensor parallelism and, and pipeline parallelism, um, but this is not really supported for all models, right? So I think the, the kind of first step in, 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 in this process um, to democratize like all, all of this, all of these cool techniques that have come up with for distributed training is to actually just support each of the individual strategies, right? So like, like coming, building out um, an implementation for tensor model parallelism and, and pipeline model parallelism in PyTorch would be a great way to, to start. Um, I think after you have that, then uh, figuring out what are the right abstractions um, uh, to allow um, some sort of optimizer um, uh, to run um, that given a user provided model and given some resources, um, Figures out what the best combination of these different strategies is um, for that given model and hardware deployment. Um, I mean, I think that the, the hard part here is how do you do that in a way that's completely unobtrusive to the, to the user, right? Um, the user really in an ideal world just has their, their PyTorch uh, model implementation. Um, they they make some call to um, pytorch .optimizer, um and some magic happens under the hood and you figure out how to distribute your competition over the number of GPUs while composing all of these different dimensions. Um, I don't think we quite have the right answers there yet, um, but I'm hopeful that, uh, and, and, and I think that the, the 
the right answer actually spans a lot of different disciplines. I think it's there's it's a it's an it's a PL problem, um, it's a systems problem, it's a machine learning problem, um, it's even uh, like a determining what's easiest for the user problem, right? So like I think it's like a pretty uh, it's a problem that cross cuts across a number of different areas of computer science. Um, but I'm hopeful in the next year or two we'll have some of this better tooling that will um, really allow like people to like easily train their models without having to, having to worry about a low, uh, a lot of low level implementation details. Yeah, that's great. It's an amazing North star to, to, yeah, to yeah, aim for. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I think we're uh, perfectly at 2.30, so end, end of time. Uh, thanks Deepak for, for joining in today. Uh, I want to thank everybody in the YouTube audience that tune in. Um, go to our website, mlsys.stanford.edu to sign up to our mailing list. Um, we have uh, these talks every week, so um, you can see who's coming up next on the website. Um, subscribe to the channel, like the video, go see the podcast, basically do only MLSYS stuff all day. <laughs> and uh, who do we have next week, Dan? Uh, next week, we've got Fred Sala. Um, so he's going to be talking about weak supervision for diverse data types. Um, so that, that should be an exciting talk. Awesome. All right. Bye, everyone. Cool. Goodbye, Bye, YouTube. Thanks, Fred.